0: It's like we got a small space, huh? Hi, ladies. Hi, gentlemen. My name is Evan. If I don't know you, I'm the pastor down here. Those of you that know me, I just got a haircut. Nothing else changed. I'm still a surfer and a stoner on the inside, right? That's what you would think. Don't worry. Talk to me long enough, you'll still believe that's who I am. Awesome. You guys ready? We're going to get after it. Before we do, I need to pray. I'm not in a good spot mentally, But man, the message that we have is straight from God, and I I just want to go to Him to uh, seek what I need for you guys to get what He wants to give you. God, creator of everything, one who saves us, one who sustains us, I come to you asking for your goodness to be poured out tonight. Over the next 45 minutes, just bring it down. Without you, I have nothing. In you, I have everything that I need. So bring what we need. Amen. All right, so our most basic beliefs are the lenses through which we see the world and the foundations off of which we build our lives. So we are Americans, right? We come from the land of opportunity and the land of the free. Therefore, we believe that the world is at our fingertips. We are also in the middle of the millennial culture. And so we believe we can get what we want when we want it. If you were raised in a loving home or an unloving home, it has major effects on the way that you view yourself and those around you. Our most basic beliefs form who we are. In this series, Justice in the Heart of God, we are examining the most basic biblical truths and then we're going to look at the ways in which this should impact our view of ourselves and others. As we continue to explore this idea of justice, Chris who spoke last week, and will continue to speak? Chris and I want us to con- want to continually bring you back to the definition. For so many of us, if not all, when we hear the word justice, we think of our judicial system. We think of those who are wrong being punished for the choices they made—a punitive form of justice. Due to what has become somewhat common in our culture, we all we also might think of justice as things being made right for those who are being mistreated. Think of those women who had been mistreated by powerful men whose voices are finally being heard. Or children who have been abused and neglected, finally getting cared for. This is a restorative form of justice. And when we look at the Bible's use of justice, we see both of these types at play. Chris focused in on the punitive type last week. The natural cause and effect for humanity's choices. Tonight, we're going to look at God's view of justice as a motivator to restore what is broken. Now, if you trace the word justice back to its origin in Latin, eustatia, it means uprightness. Uprightness is a metaphor. It is a crooked being made straight. When something that is out of line is brought back to its intended upright position. This means that justice is when things are being brought back to their original design. It is a redirecting, a change of course for a person or a group of people, moving them from wrong to right. Justice is not just punishing the wrong, it is also about establishing and reestablishing the good. Now, civil rights are a beautiful example of this. As I'm sure you all know, African Americans who are in the United States over the past 400 years have not been seen as equal to to white people. The overriding culture within our country saw them as less than, which led them to be mistreated, right to be treated unfair or unjust ways. It wasn't until the 1950s that justice began to take place. People of a different race being treated in the way that God designed them to be treated, as equals. People like King and others stepped forward in order to make things right to bring our culture back closer to its original design. I hope you hear what I'm saying. Justice isn't only when the bad are punished. It's also when things are brought back to the way that they've always intended to be. Now, in thinking through this lens, let's consider God's original design for humanity, his creation. According to Genesis 1 and 2, we have been made not only to function as the caretakers of the rest of his creation, but to do so in his presence. We are created to live and breathe, to operate with direct access to the maker of everything. I love the way Genesis 3.8 puts it. Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. How sweet would that be? We were created to be directly in the presence of the source of life. He is the one that made us, and the life that we continue to have flows directly from him. Where else should we be? But as Chris explored last week, we were given free will, the ability to choose, and our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, chose to reject God's authority and to replace their creator and all that he provided with themselves. They wanted to be fully in charge of their own lives instead of approaching everything they do in unison with God. Because we were created to have the ability to choose, God honored their choice. By deciding to reject God's perfect plan for his creation, they instantly became imperfect. Unfortunately, but biblically and somewhat logically, what is imperfect cannot be in the presence of what is perfect. It's a big concept. Let me kind of explain my thoughts. According to the Bible, God's perfection or holiness is unapproachable by the things that fall short of his glory. When something does not exist in the same level of perfection comes into his presence, it is destroyed. Let's see what the Bible says about that. First Timothy. It is he alone, talking about God, who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can seen. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then this is Moses on Mount Sinai, God talking to him. But God said, you cannot see my face, so no one, for no one shall see me and live. Now I can't clearly explain why this would happen, but here's a thought that my wife gave me. She's full of so much wisdom. You know that feeling of awe and wonder that you've experienced at different times when you've been in nature, like a sunset, sunrise, or from your kids, or spouse, or a movie, or a song? That feeling where you are overwhelmed with how good something is and the way that it makes you feel? Now imagine what we would feel if we saw what was perfect, without fault. To see a God whose glory is a billion times better than the best sunset. A God who would produce a feeling that would trump our most intense feelings of love a billion times over. Think about the intensity of emotion that that would bring to our imperfect physical bodies, to our heart, to our brain, to our adrenal glands. Also consider the weight of despair that a person would feel, knowing that they have rejected something that is better than anything else. Think about what that level of despair would do to our fragile bodies. They may literally stop working and die. So when Adam and Eve chose to be imperfect, then they should have been immediately overwhelmed by God's glory. But they weren't. Instead, they were removed from the Garden of Eden, from the place in which they would continue to come face to face with their creator. Now this alone should cause a person to stop and wonder, why wouldn't God justly punish his rebellious creation? To which he may have the answer, he did punish them. He sent them away from the perfection of the garden into a world where they would experience pain and hardship with the most basic things like childbearing or the tilling of the earth. God abandons his creation and walks away. I get that logic. I do. But as the creator of everything, God is the source of life. That means without him, what would not exist? Life. Life. But it did, which means that God continued to be a part of his now broken creation. He continued to provide it with good things. I'm just going to keep bringing you back to the Bible. Let's look at what James says. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends his rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Are you guys seeing what we're we're reading here? I love the way David puts it. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. God continues to bring what only he can, life, to a creation that openly rejected his authority. For the rest of our time, I want to walk through two different things. Why would he do this? Why would a perfect God that's in control of everything stick with a creation that openly rejected him? And how, through the lens of justice, could he do this? How could a just God not overtly punish an incorrect and unrighteous choice? Now, I believe the simplest way to answer the question of why an all-powerful creator would continue to sustain the existence of a rebellious and self-centered creation is because of his heart, the character traits that define him. Now, it's beautiful. God himself gives this to Moses and to us from Mount Sinai. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. To Moses, God defines himself. In the same way that you could tell me the heart of your spouse, Your kids, your best friend, God lets Moses and us know his deeper, even essential characteristics that motivate him to do what he does. Let's read it again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can just leave that up there, Carrie. It was God's mercy and grace that led him to respond to Adam and Eve in the way that he did. Instead of giving them the full consequences of their choice, he let them experience both their desire to be their own gods and his desire to continue to provide them with with what they need. He allowed them to know both good and evil and still continue to experience what only he provides, life. You're gonna hear me say that over and over. I want that hammered into your head. What only He can provide. Life. This was because of God's abo- This is because God is abounding in steadfast love. In 1 John, the author states that God is love. Not God is loving, but that God is love. That love is defined by the creator of everything. That what we know of love, kindness, Affection, gentleness, care, support, forgiveness, that all flows directly from him. This is why he was unable to simply let Adam and Eve reap the unadulterated cost of their foolishness. Because at the core of who God is, is love for what he has made. Now let's take a moment to think about what this means for us that the one who made you is motivated, even driven by his love for you. Think about the way that your parents or your spouses or your best friends love for you directly affects the way in which they treat you. Now multiply that by perfection. Now for me, this thought is both insightful and hard to really grasp to the point of it being somewhat easy to dismiss. The all-powerful being that made everything that I cannot see loves me. It's a beautiful thought, but it's too big and bizarre, bizarre for me to really hang on to. Anybody else feel that? But something that I've found to be helpful in understanding the reality of someone's love is looking at what they have done for me. Now, according to Genesis 34, one way in which God proves his love for us is through faithfulness. So if we want to better understand the reality of God's love for us, we should look at the ways in which he has remained faithful to provide his creation with what only he can bring, which is life. So let's start big picture. What happened this morning at 6.53? Anybody up? Sunrise. Why did it happen? Was it because you decided that we should have another day? On average, you take 23,040 breaths every day. Why do you do this? Stay alive, right? Because it allows oxygen to enter your bloodstream, makes it way to your heart, and then it can be spread throughout the rest of your body to all of the individual cells. Did you design the Earth's atmosphere to contain enough oxygen for your body and the other 7.8 billion bodies to use to keep every one of your cells alive? After our bodies process the oxygen, we exhale CO2, carbon dioxide. Along with sunlight and water, plants use carbon dioxide to properly function. Plants and what they produce are what we rely on to stay alive. Did you create this interconnected and synchronized system that allows life to exist on the only planet in the portion of the universe that we have seen that still has life Do any of the foundations of life come from you? I hope you understand the point that I'm trying to make. I could keep going with basic scientific fact after basic scientific fact. Our lives are possible only because someone so much bigger than us wants us to be alive. Because the God of the Bible remains faithful to his creation. You exist only because you were intentionally created and are faithfully sustained by your creator. Let's hone in a little bit more. Thinking about God's faithfulness to you beyond the basics. In John 10.10, Jesus says, He has come to bring life, life in all its fullness. That means that God's desire for you is more than to just survive. He wants you to be content. He wants you to have purpose and fulfillment and joy. He wants you to have a good life. Because he wants this, he does not simply sit idly by and hope that happens for you. Instead, he directly interacts with your day-to-day life. Because he is so powerful and our attention span is like a three-year-old's, he brings us opportunity after opportunity in endless ways a lot of them come through what the Bible calls our heart, our emotions, our mind, our willpower. Let me give you a couple examples. We we have all been designed to want more than this world can offer. That is why every single person is constantly seeking more in hopes that they will find fulfillment. But because how we are made, this desire will never be fully realized unless we are seeking our Creator. God allows our craving for him to still exist even after we rejected him so that way we will be drawn away from the temporary, away from what can never truly satisfy and drawn towards what is bigger and better than what we can see. God also directly steps into our lives in more specific ways than just a deeper longing. He stirs up specific thoughts and emotions through conversations with other people things you read, sermons you listen to, movies you watch, music you listen to, sunrise, sunsets, the laughter of a child. Even if you don't believe in him, he does this. Even if you know that he is real, but openly choose to follow your own path, God is in continuous pursuit of you. Let me give you some examples from my life. I was raised in a home where God was the center of my parents' life. When I was four, my dad felt the call to quit a prosperous career in order to go back to school to become a pastor. My whole childhood, I was taught about the goodness of God and showing his love through other people. I became a Christian at an early age, like five, six years old. I was baptized when I was 10. It was all very sincere and genuine. But when I was 15, I replaced God's authority over my life with partying. Year after year, I chose making getting high my God. Over almost a 15-year period, God never stopped pursuing me. Even though I openly rejected him, he still continued to directly interact with my heart. Let me give you two specifics. So whenever I got busted for smoking weed or drinking, which happened a few different times when I was in high school, God prompted my dad and gave him the ability to stay calm. In the midst of all my craziness, I never saw my dad get visibly angry. I was still punished, but never felt like I had disappointed him. Years later, I recognized that much of my understanding of God's relentless love comes from my dad's example. Here's another one. During my freshman year of college, I had to come back to Rapid multiple times to go to court due to rolling a friend's parent's suburban, getting a DUI. During one of these visits, I went to my old youth pastor's house. He gave me a book, Ragamuffin Gospel. On the long bus ride home, I remember something deep within me, stirring as I read about how I could never sin my way out of God's love. These are just two out of countless ways that God kept pursuing me, regardless of how much I chose to run from him, how far I went into my own selfishness. You know, unfortunately, our experiences with God and his goodness are very easily dismissed. We just categorize them as normal. But the reality is, if God wasn't continually interacting with us, we would be fully consumed by our selfishness, by our desire to use our own limited and faulty logic and wisdom to create the life that we confidently believe is right. Get this analogy. In the way, same way that the earth would not be inhabitable if it didn't hold to the natural laws by which it was established, humanity would have long ago destroyed itself if God was not subtly interacting with our hearts. I imagine that there are certain hallmark moments in your life, and looking back, you can see it was a pivot point in your life a time when something brought about a significant change that has caused your life to be better. If nothing else tonight, I strongly encourage you to spend time thinking about those moments, on why they happened. Think about who you used to be and who you are now. If you dig deep enough, I promise you, you will see God's involvement. If God is real, If he is powerful and interactive as the Bible shows, then he has been an integral part of your life and why you have the good things that you have. He is the one that has been making things upright, slowly bringing you back to your original design. He does this out of his intense and overwhelming love for you. Like the song we ended with. But, through the lens of justice, how could a perfectly just God be allowed to do this? Let's look at a couple of verses that let us know that God is just. The rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are just. The righteous, they fall in line with the law. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. Or in Colossians Paul is describing God at this point, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done and there is no partiality. Now, if this is who God is and how he deals with people, how is he able to continually interact with a rebellious creation, bringing them what only he can bring, life? It is because of his willingness, even desire to take our just punishment. So often, if not always, in order to bring about justice, to make things right, it requires action. Without Lincoln and his willingness to start a civil war, or without Dr. King and his willingness to publicly declare his stance against a culture of discrimination, justice for the Afri- African Americans would have never happened. The same is true for us. Without God's willingness to pay our just consequences we could have never been, bought, never been brought back to our original design. To be able to interact with the one who made us and to directly experience his goodness. Let's look at First Peter. Talking about Jesus. Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Make sure you see that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls because of God's steadfast love for us, remember, that is what motivates him, he became man and willingly paid our punishment for our rebellion, for every single one of your selfish and hurtful choices that you have made and will make. In Matthew 27, we see what this physically looked like. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama, shabbak thani. I practiced that like 12 times. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus hanging on the cross. For three hours, Jesus was completely cut off from God's presence. Because he bore our sins in his body on the cross, Jesus was unable to be in the presence of a perfect and a just God. Jesus experienced what Adam and Eve should have experienced. He was abandoned by our creator in the same way that we should have been. And he did this because he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because of what Jesus had to do, because of what Jesus chose to do, we have been able to experience our creator and his goodness. If we go to verse 51 in Matthew, we could to see a beautiful illustration. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the curtain in the temple was there to separate the holy of holies in which the can, which contained God and all of his glory, right? and is separated from the rest of the temple where the priest and people offering sacrifices were hanging out. When Jesus paid our just punishment, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It is such an obvious symbol of what had occurred. The creator of everything now had the ability to interact with his creation and bring it back to its original design specifically in the spiritual realm. Last week, Chris laid out three forms of death that took place at the garden when Adam and Eve chose rebellion. Death of relationship, death of spirit, and death of the body. In Jesus' sacrificial act, he brought mankind the ability to be resurrected spiritually and eventually physically. That means that the moment that someone declares that they believe that Jesus is God and that he died the death that they deserve, they instantly become spiritually alive. That's all it takes. Confessing your sins and crying out to God. And in that moment, you become spiritually renewed or alive. Ephesians 2 is like the gospel summarized. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and sense, and we are by nature children of wrath wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you want to hear everything that I said summarized in 10 verses, read Ephesians 2. Now as I wrap this up, I believe in order to fully understand the fundamental biblical truth of God's sincere and endless love, we must know and always remember that Jesus did not change God's mind. Rather, Jesus' sacrificial death has been a part of God's plan to redeem humanity from our own foolishness from the beginning of time. 1 Peter 1, and I wanted to show you so many things, but I wanted to make sure to give the musicians their time. So this summarizes it in two verses. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world. Do you hear that? He was destined before the foundation of the world. Think about when that was. Before mankind was created, before we chose to reject God, before we elevated ourselves above our creator, God had established a way to bring us out of our chaos, out of our destruction, and out of our death, and back into his love, his contentment, his joy, and his life. If and when a person knows this and continually brings their mind back to it, It will change everything. I'm going to pray. I want to thank God for who he is. God, you're incredible. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for establishing a way to redeem us long before we even existed. Thank you for being in the midst of our craziness, continually pursuing us. Thank you for never turning away from us, but continually showing us mercy and grace your steadfast love, and your faithfulness. God, you are so good. You are worthy of every ounce of praise we can give you. We praise you, God. We praise you.